This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 470 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Craig Davidson. Now, Craig spent a majority of his career working as not only a lifeguard, but a waterman on the shores of Hawaii. And as with previous guests, there are so many parallels between the lifeguarding profession and fire EMS and law enforcement. So then Craig transitioned into the world of stunts, a profession that I've also occupied for a couple of decades now. So again, so many parallels to pull from that, whether it's safety on the set, whether it's the rigging side. So this was a fascinating conversation. What also made it fun is there were dogs and chickens and all kinds of things in the background too. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of 470 episodes of some of the greatest minds on earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Craig Davidson. Enjoy. So, Craig, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Aloha. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to do this, and uh, I'm honored to be talking to you. So, we were connected by Jason Bitzer. So, for people that haven't heard that conversation, and they can probably guess by your initial greeting, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am in lovely Makaha. Oahu, uh, it's a place where I was born and raised, um, you know, and, and it's a place where I find special and close to my heart. And so we decided to, you know, buy a house 15 years ago and live here. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I have to explore right from the very beginning then. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in on the east side of Oahu, um, at in Kaneohe or Kailua, uh, at Castle Hospital. Um, my mom was from Kailua, and my dad was from Makaha, and they had met up at Kamehameha Schools, uh, which is you know the Hawaiian school over here, the Bishop Estate Hawaiian School, and you know. It was cool that they met, um, and, you know, it's nice that they made me and my sisters and all that good stuff, but I was mostly raised out in Makaha. Um, my dad, our house was in Makaha on Whiteman Street, and that street was very famous. It was like a famous little surf street. I mean, you had Auntie Relson living two houses away from me, and I was always you know around her or at her house or 
doing something on the street. And we had like 20 kids on our street. We had like 20 kids playing every day after school all night. You know, and all of us were, were either in the ocean or skateboarding or playing football on the street or doing something. Um, and it was a special street. It was really special. Um, I, I, I think about it and I think back on those special times and the times that I had with all my friends. It's, I, it's not the same nowadays. You can't even go on the street nowadays. And I won't even let my kids go on the street without me being out there. And whereas when I was a little kid, you know, we were always on the street or always by ourselves at the beach. It's different, different time, different. It's changed, changed a lot. But um, yeah, I lived two houses away from Auntie Rao and I was lucky enough to, you know, see her and experience all her stories and her her world travels and, you know, all that good stuff. And she was known as the Queen of Makaha. And, you know, she sadly she passed away in, I think it was, I don't remember, it was 2015 or something, I forget. But, um, but yeah, that's, Makaha is really special to me and special to a lot of people out here. But huh. I went to high school out at Wainai High School, which was a rough, rough time. It was a rough, like, area. Um, I think it was the second day or the third day I was in school. The Hawaiians were fighting the Samoans, and it started it started at a like a local dance at a gym or something, and it carried on into school. And on like the second or third day, the Hawaiians were throwing the Samoans off the second floor. I mean, it was that radical. Damn. Like, like flying them off the second floor. And there was like SWAT cops and officers with like shields and you know, full on SWAT gear and we're like, what is going on? <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's, that's just the way of, of the West side, the wild West, the, the, the way of the West side and, you know, where I lived and it, it was radical. It was really radical growing up. It's really, uh, it's a lot of drugs, a lot of, a lot of drugs. I mean, I've had so much people go to jail, you know, for drugs and go to jail for killing people because they were on drugs. You know, it's just I was one of the lucky ones and I made it out. I made it out pretty good and very thankful of my childhood, of course, because if I didn't have all those experiences, then I wouldn't be what I am today or who I am today, you know. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just, you got two polarizing moments in your childhood. And it's funny, the street thing. I just had a conversation with, um, an Australian guy who's, uh, SAS, like an you know, elite soldier. And he talked about that same thing when he was young. So you had this one, um, environment when you were younger where I'm sure the kids that you were playing with were probably from all 
you know, walks of life, but you all play together on the street. And then you had the school where it was very divided and there was that antagonistic element. So what, what were the difference in dynamics between the two? Why was one peaceful, even though you were younger? And then why was there so much tension with the other one? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. On our neighborhood, it was just such a good group of kids. I mean, like you said, it was just all different ethnic ethnicities, all harmonizing and blending in. And we had one kid who was like top 200 or top 100 surfer in the world. <laughs> and, you know, and he, he ended up turning to, to drugs and, and that was it. You know, that was his curse he's totally fine today and he and he shapes surfboards and he's still a phenomenal surfer but i don't know then you go right out up the street you go right around the corner and you know not even 300 yards away and it's just radical just scary but i don't know what made us as kids at the time like not see that or be blind to it or like Whereas nowadays you're like so aware of it and I don't even want my kids to be on the road without me, you know, it's just different. It's just a different time. And Now, when, when you hear stories of, of, um, you know, Hawaii, I had, um, uh, uncle Hoffy on Aaron Hoff, um, who he has a nonprofit there trying to help some of the kids and steer them in the right direction. He uses CrossFit and he has the, the great, great Hawaiian, excuse me, the great Hawaiian run. Um, right, on Kauai, yeah, on Kauai. Yeah, so, and he talked about that. You know, you hear this, like Andy Irons, you know, suffered an overdose. There's so many of these these top surfers that we seem to lose. What, how did that infiltrate the island? Do you know the history of, of why there is such a, a drug problem on the island specifically? You know, I'll be honest, it's just like anywhere else. I mean, I mean, but it, it, but we're on an island, it's easier to get, you know, drugs are easier to get and people are always trying to make a dollar and make a buck. And, you know, I, I was kind of surrounded by some of that when I was a kid, you know, um, my parents smoked marijuana when I was a kid and, that was kind of just the thing, you know, that's kind of normal. It's kind of just in the seventies and the eighties, that's what people did. And then when you, as you get older and the, the drugs progress and get more radical and you got meth and you got cocaine and you got all these other drugs, people like Andy, they just marijuana wasn't enough, you know, and other people that I've known and marijuana just wasn't enough. And it's funny now it's like turned full circle now. Whereas everybody's smoking marijuana now. Whereas back then, if you did that, if you smoked, you were kind of like the druggie, even though it was just marijuana. Now, what's the policy on, on the island? Is marijuana legal now? Uh, I have no idea, but I don't know. I don't think it is. But you can have a medical marijuana card, which... I think everybody that smokes has a medical <laughs> marijuana card. <laughs> so I, I, I have no idea. So <laughs> I'm not a habitual. I'm not a habitual kind of guy. Um, 
true story. I, even though I was surrounded by all that stuff, I never did a single drug till I was 30 years old. Not one single drug. What made you finally try one at that age? Uh, we, were, we were doing Blue Crush on the North Shore. And the North Shore was just the North Shore, you know. North Shore was, it was radical at the time. And, you know, like Aaron had said, the North Shore was, it was everywhere. You know, you had all these eagles and pro surfers coming into town and people staying in houses for extended periods of time. And, you know, everybody was doing it, which I didn't realize. It's kind of naive to the fact that everybody was doing it until I tried it. Then you realize, oh my gosh, everybody's doing it. You know, and it's, it was, but it took me 30 years and it's the one biggest regret I think I have in my life. Like, cause I could, I could tell people all the way till I was 30, never touched Never touched it. No, never touched anything. No, no, no. And I can't say that anymore, you know. And I'm 50, I'm almost 50 now, turned 50 in June. And that's one thing I wish I, 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 I mean, I can't take it back. And the life experiences are, are uh, priceless, I guess. I mean, seeing all that and experiencing all that for a few years, you know. But, it wasn't hard for me to stop and I haven't, I haven't stopped since I haven't done anything since, I don't know, 2004 or five, maybe somewhere around there. Yeah. See, it's fascinating to me. So I have a lot of conversations about this um, and I'll give you a good backstrap background story. So in Portugal and people listening to this frequently have heard this story before, but about 20 years ago, they decriminalized addiction. So not selling drugs, not smuggling drugs, but addiction. So let's say Andy, for example, Andy Irons, you know, I don't know what he was taking specifically, but if he was having to, if he was caught with something he shouldn't have had, then he would go to prison, you know, but, and that's really driven people into the shadows that are battling mental health issues and using illicit drugs to fill whatever void there is and also it empowers as you said all the violence that you know the the gangs and the death and the the dealing and the smuggling and all that stuff so you know with portugal what they did they ended up you know like i said decriminalizing those addicts now get fed through a medical system they become a patient a mental health patient and they go through addiction counseling and, and job creation and all these things and within less than 10 years they completely revolutionized their country from the worst addiction rate in the whole of the Europe to to the best one, the lowest one. So, you know, the more kind of stories I hear from around the world, like a lot of the military that are over in Afghanistan say, well, yeah, no, we see firsthand that this illicit drug trade uh, funds terrorism. You know, right. there's a direct correlation. So there's just all these different stories and they all layer. And it's so tragic that, you know, you're living in yet another place. It's riddled with the criminal effects of empowering thugs through through this and if we could just take these addiction issues and put them through the medical side there also wouldn't be that woo factor that you're talking about like you know it wouldn't be cool because it would just be a you know 
a medical thing. It's the same as a medical marijuana. Well, you know, I, I use it as a painkiller. Okay, great. That's much better than opiates. But, um, you know, it, it breaks my heart hearing whether it's the UK, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Hawaii, that this one policy that started out the, the US has affected so many countries around the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, North Shore, anyway, that's back to that story. North Shore was just radical. And if you weren't doing it, you weren't getting the girls. You weren't, you know, hanging out at the good parties. You weren't hanging out with the cool guys. You weren't, you know, and not that any of that mattered to me when I was a kid growing up because it's different on the West Side as it is on the North Shore. You know, it's just, especially during the winter on the North Shore where it's like, Look at me, look at me. Everybody's everybody's in town. Surf pro surfing world is in town and everybody's partying and you know, surfing all day and barbecuing at night and partying at night. I mean, that was the norm. And you know, I was single at the time and just gotten divorced and I was like, Yeah, it's gonna hang out and the next thing you know, it just You're doing it. You're doing it. Just um be in with the the big kids you know i guess <laughs> but yeah it was, i was around it a lot and the funny here's another funny funny story my grandfather was a police officer all his life from 1950s to like 1987 i think it was when he retired and none of his sons have ever gotten busted and uh my uncle was a vietnam helicopter pilot he was an officer too but he was the guy in the green harvest helicopter flying around all over hawaii looking for people with marijuana plants in their yard and he would always land a helicopter in my grandfather's property up in makaha landed in the property come have lunch in the house with my grandparents and me when I was a little kid and then get back in the helicopter and take off. As he's walking to the helicopter, there was marijuana everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) There's plants all over my grandfather's yard. Just walk right by. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but I was very, 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 uh, Stricted myself up until I was 30 and then, you know, then I went to crap and, you know, that's the story. But my mom was, you know, she worked at a, her, her dad's t-shirt factory. They sold wholesale t-shirts. You know, she was gone at seven in the morning. My dad was gone at six in the morning. He was a, he was a carpenter, construction worker, carpenter, framer, all his career. Uh, so he would be home at four and working in the sun all day. He would just go in the back, pop a beer, smoke a cigarette, smoke, a, smoke, a, smoke, smoke a joint, you know, and then my mom would come home. Same thing. Just go in the back, smoke a cigarette, smoke a joint. It was the normal every day, every day of my life. And once I did my chores, if I was good to go, I was out that door. I was going either football practice, basketball practice, 
or the beach. Those are my escapes. And it wasn't really an escape. It was just because, they, you know, if I did everything I, I could and they were doing their own thing, I knew I had to be home when the sun was down. And I did that almost every day from the time I was, I don't even know, nine, eight, you know, I don't even know. I used to walk to school at five years old, like a mile. We all used to get it, meet each other at one house, cross the highway with cars, and walk a mile to school. Maybe half a mile. It wasn't a mile, but maybe half a mile. Probably felt so like a mile to your five-year-old legs. <laughs> Yeah, I did my I did everything on my own pretty much. Like me, all of our friends. It was just a different, totally different time. See, and that's it's interesting as well when you think about it. When you're a kid and my son is exactly the same, he's next door right now, but you know, when he goes out, when his friends all congregate, they're out till, you know, the sun's gone down. And, you know, what a great positive outlet. You you're outside, you're exercising, you're with the tribe, you know, with your group. And as we get older, you know, we tend to lean more into, like you said, the television, the beer, the, um, you know, some of the less healthy coping mechanisms. And it's it's intriguing. Like, at what point do we lose that desire just to go out and be amongst people and enjoy, you know, being present, playing a game, being amongst nature versus staring at a TV and, you know, sipping on a Budweiser? Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that changed, where that turned. I think the invention of an iPhone pretty much screwed all that stuff. <laughs> uh. Well, speaking of television, obviously there's there's an upside. You know, that ended up being an industry that you worked in as well. Um, and I know it was you know the the Waterman crafts that were you know, your specialty. So tell me about your journey um, within the ocean itself. Whether it was surfing, whether it was lifeguarding, you know, how did that path uh, unfold? Yeah. So when I was a kid. When we were kids, we were all boogie boarders, and we took it, a bunch of us took it to the level of, like, competing in high school, you know, events, and semi-pro and pro surf contests, and my best friend, and I wasn't, I was working at a department store at the time, and a Taco Bell, and I was managing a Taco Bell, and my best friend decided he was going to try to be a lifeguard. And I'm like, oh, cool, because it was with all the people that, you know, we've taken uh, life-saving classes with before, the famous Brian Kelana, the famous Mel Pu'u, the famous Dennis Govea, like the famous Terry Ahui. Those, those four guys are the guys that invented jet ski rescue. I, if somebody in the world tells you they invented jet ski rescue, they're bullshitting you. They're lying because it was invented by those four guys. And we like to call them the forefathers sometimes. And we call them, you know, all kinds of different things. But those are the four guys that started it. And so when my friend was like, yeah, I'm going to go lifeguard. I'm like, oh, yeah, it sounds kind of fun. But I wasn't in any shape to go try because i was at a department store and i was eating taco bell every damn day you know what i mean <laughs> i mean i'm i'm pretty thin and i've been thin all my life but i was not in shape so he went and did it and he passed and six months goes by and he's like 
Craig, here's another test. You should, you should do it. And I'm like, oh, man. Okay, I'll go do it. And I did. And I barely passed. Barely passed. I think it was like, it's 25 minutes to pass the run, swim. 1,000 meter run, 1,000 meter swim. I think I finished like 24, 30 or something. I barely passed. I barely made it. But my ocean skills and the life that we live being in the ocean all as, as kids, that was more, to me, that was more valuable. I think they saw that it was more valuable. And then they got recommendations from all, you know, Brian and everybody else. Like, hey, you guys got to get Craiger in and, you know, this, this might be something good because we're all, we were all their students. We we're all their students when we were young. And I passed. I'm like, okay, perfect. I, pa- I go in the class. I make the class. I pass. So this is, like I said, the time when they were, this was 1990, I think it was, when they were just doing research development, whole jet ski rescue thing, making sleds, making rescue sleds, coming up with all these techniques. We were doing around the island um, rides just to build stamina. We were we were like, and I was lucky enough to, because I was around those guys all the time as a kid, I was lucky enough to tag along me and Jason, my friend, my best friend. We were lucky enough to tag along and become protégés. You know, and at the time, there was no test to be a rescue operator. Now there is, because because of equal rights and you know all these rules that you have but at the time there was no test and the forefathers handpicked the operators and i can tell you now that at the time jason and myself and a couple other guys from the north shore that were handpicked turned out to be the best guys, like the best second generation of guys. Because you had, you know, Brian, the forefathers could recognize, you know, this, that guy can ride. His timing's good. His, he's not afraid to bust through a wave. He's not afraid to go in and save somebody. He's not afraid to risk his life. He's not, you know, they could pick that out. And so lucky enough, Jason and I were the, I think the second two they were picked. The first two were from the North Shore and they were picked. And we lasted, the first four of us lasted a long time. We went 25 years and Jason's still a lifeguard. And But the other guy, one guy dropped out because he, he got a better job. Uh, but three of us went 25 and plus years of being jet ski operators. And that was the handpicked guys. But yeah, and so yeah, that's where I became a lifeguard. And I thought, we thought this is a good story. You're going to love this. We thought we were the shit. And am I allowed to swear? Oh, yes, please. It's, it's okay, encouraged. Okay, so we thought we were the shit. We thought we were the <laughs> baddest guys on the planet right we're with brian kellan on we're riding jet skis and it's like 
Baywatch, you know, and you know, I don't know if Baywatch is around, but we were the we were the guys. Everybody sees us. Get all the glory, they say, because we're on the jet skis and we're saving all the people. And you know, three years into it, three or four years into being a lifeguard, and at the time we were wearing gold earrings for some reason, gold chains, like little gold chains and gold earrings for some reason. I don't even know why. We were just it was just the time we we're doing that. And we're lifeguarding. And you know, we're working out every day, like every day, pretty fit kids. And, and one day the waves were giant, 20 freaking five feet giant Makaha. North Shore was closing out and they needed an extra jet ski. So they sent Dennis Govell and Jason Patterson, my best friend, to the North Shore. And Brian Kelana and I stayed out over here at Makaha. Because North Shore was so big, they wanted two units. And so we were at Makaha and Brian surfing, and I'm on the jet ski picking them up and picking up people and saving people and doing all the normal stuff. And we would just take turns surfing. And at the time, Brian Kelano was one of the best big wave surfers in the world. I mean, he was the man. Water safety legend, captain, rescue operator, inventor of jet skis, big wave surfer. Like, and he was a he was starting to do movies and become you know a, a professional stuntman. And we get this call, and it's swimmer in distress out at Kealva Ula, which is the end of the road over here on the west side. Some people call it Yokohama, some, but we we know it as Kealva Ula. And so we ditch a surfboard on the beach. We race down there. And we don't know where this guy is. Nobody knows. And back then, the radios, the communication sucked. Like, really bad. Sucked. And we get down there, and this guy is in a cave called the Moiho. And he's in it. And we've... Brian and have, you know, and Melvin used to take us in the Moiho and we'd come up with like ideas and ways to reverse the jet ski in the Moiho. And at the time you're like, it's flat, it's small, you know, oh, this is easy. This is nothing. This is freaking duck soup. Well, that day, 20 foot waves plus, it was the scariest moments of my lifeguard career. I thought I was going to die. And here I am with the legend Brian Kelana, and this guy we find out is stuck in the cave. He's inside the cave. And Brian's like, I gotta swim in. I'm like, you're crazy, you gotta swim in. And mind you, he's, a, he's just been surfing for like two hours, giant waves. And he's like, I gotta swim in, I gotta go check. And he checks and the guy is screaming and he's in the cave. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. I said, and Brian was, he would swim back on the ski. He's like, yeah, he's, he's in there. And I'm like, okay, what do we do? Like, I don't know what to do. You're, you know, I'm just scared shitless with my fins on, my stupid gold chain and my <laughs> stupid earrings. <laughs> and the guy, anyway, is in there for, I think he ended up being in there for three hours. But as we were trying to rescue him, 
our skis started taking in water. And the next thing you know, our ski is dead. And so Brian tells me to swim the ski, like, because we were trained to do that, tie the rescue buoy to the front, swim it out in the deep water. And, and mind you now, it's a scene. It's hundreds of people on the brief, helicopters, fire department, lifeguards. It is a scene. And they call for a backup ski. And here I am in the middle of the ocean, like a quarter mile out, swimming the ski back towards Makaha Way, which is where the lifeguard tower was. And Brian swims up on the reef. He times it, gets up on the reef, and is waiting waiting for the next ski to come because he's going to get in the lifeguard truck, drive back to the lifeguard tower, launch the next jet ski, and, and come at somebody else to go save the guy. Well, anyway, the guy comes out. He comes out one time, and I wasn't there. I was still swimming in the ski. I was in the middle of the ocean. Luckily for me, the fire department helicopter comes, drops a rope to me, and I tie it to the front of the ski, and he drags me all the way up to the to the almost to the trailer of the jet of the lifeguard truck. He drags me all the way to the road. We bail the water out. We do all that. We get in the truck. We go back. Apparently, the guy came out. They couldn't get him because the sets were coming. He went right back in. Shoop, went back in the cave. Another 30 minutes or so, come, the guy comes back out again. And now we're all there. We're all looking. And Brian and Earl Bungle, who was on the sled at the time after me, they grab him and they save him. So now we get all get in the truck again because they got to go back towards the lifeguard tower to bring him up. So we all, everybody's happy. Everybody's. And we get him on the beach, and there's a video of this. You can see a video, and Jason and I are there because Jason and Dennis drove all the way back from the North Shore to come help us because we needed the help. You know, we're, we're there for three hours plus. And you can see in this video our stupid gold chain dangling as we're putting oxygen on this guy, as we're like, and what it made me realize was, yeah, I thought I was a shit. I wasn't even near the, the shit. I wasn't even near the top of what I saw Brian Carolina doing. Swimming in the cave, screaming for help. Here I am reversing the jet ski, making sure I'm close. Like not even realize what I'm doing, but like just watching what he was doing and understanding that even after three years of lifeguarding with all these dumbass gold chains, dumbass earrings, I wasn't even close to what he was. And I thought in my head, I want to be exactly like that. But a time, you know, I leave lifeguarding. I want to be just like Brian Kellum. And people always tease me about, oh, you know, yeah, you're, you're always following Brian or you're always doing, you know, you got to work in the movies and all that shit. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? If you were like looking up to somebody to idolize when I was a kid, that was the guy. So after we rescued that guy, or he rescued that guy, him and Earl, 
I realized I wasn't even near what I wanted to be. I got rid of gold chains, got rid of gold earrings, and I haven't worn them since. <laughs> well, that's such a great story, though, because it pulls out two things that I hear again and again from from people that have had, you know, that have actually achieved a huge amount. And the first is humility. You know, I think that's a very, very dangerous um kind of frame of mind when you think you know it all when you think you're the shit as you said and it, you know it happens in all professions but the other thing is you once you've learned to be humble you need that mentor figure you need that person who walks the walk who's usually probably so humble they don't even think they are the mentor but they are so brian you know you found yourself a role model who clearly was willing to teach as well but actually walked the walk through his whole entire career yeah you know, and it made me realize that I, I wasn't, like I said, we're on the beach, <laughs> working in lifeguard towers, checking out girls, gold chain, gold earring, <coughs> excuse me, none of that meant anything, nothing at all, because I wanted to be at that level, because I didn't want to be a scaredy cat going, oh my gosh, Brian, you're going to die if you swim in that cave. Because I told him that. I'm like, Brian, you're going to die. I also told him, if your dad was here, he would tell you not to swim in that cave. Because, true story, it happened to his dad 20 years, I think, to the, to the year somebody else was in that cave. And Brian's dad, Buffalo Carolina, wanted to swim in there. I think it was with, like, football pads, maybe? Brian could tell you that. But like he wanted to go in there with football pads or a helmet or something and swim in and get somebody and they couldn't get him. They wouldn't let him. And and I think they had to fish the guy out with a big giant fish hook or something days later or something. I forget. I don't know the whole story, but Brian could tell you that. So I was telling Brian, if your dad was here, he would wring your neck and tell you not to go in. But he didn't care. He didn't, he didn't care. All he cared about was saving this guy's life. And it made me realize, like you said, that I wasn't even close to being the lifeguard that I thought I was. Not even close. But it gave me somebody to look forward to and look at and be like, that's who I want to be like. So let me ask you this. So you had that humility moment. Obviously, Brian lent on the fact that he had, you know, taken his job seriously and, and constantly worked on his fitness and his skills and, you know, his big wave surfing and his jet ski skills to the point where it culminated to the fact where he was able to facilitate that rescue. So what did you change? What was your mindset shift? You know, what were the differences between the day before that event and then the years after? Well, we trained a lot. We trained, oh, we trained a lot, and we did a lot of extreme stuff together. Running rocks. I mean, Brian, you know, he started running rocks before anybody was running rocks. I mean, underwater, we were running rocks at forty feet, going down forty feet, no fins, running the rock like fifteen yards at the most and then swimming up without blacking out. I mean, we're doing stuff every single day 
to make us better. Treading water for hours, doing all these oddball, fun water training exercises, but like training. I would do like 200 pull-ups every day. I built a pull-up station behind the lifeguard tower just to do pull-ups every day, like just to be in shape. Run. Jason was running the beach every single day for oh, years. I mean, we're trying to be trying to be as in shape and physically fit and mentally ready uh, as much as we could to 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 get to that level. Because he was on a different level. They were on a different level. Not only him, but like Melvin and Dennis and Terry Huey and all those guys. They're on they were just on a different level and we all wanted to be like that. And so we changed. We changed. You know, just work we just worked out more, a whole lot more. Well, I think it's a very powerful leadership um example, you know. The, the issue we have sometimes in, at least in the profession I was in, there was some leaders that absolutely walked the walk that I would follow into a burning building any day without questioning. But there was a lot that didn't, you know? And so with him inspiring you constantly, with him constantly having the humility to constantly be chasing his own excellence, yeah, which you never achieve, you, you know, it's, it's an unending goal. But for, for him and even Jason Bitzer, who connected us, I mean, he's been lifeguarding for years and listening to him talking about his training and his fitness. I think that's such a powerful thing that is understood with the lifeguarding in, in Hawaii, with, 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 you know, the beach lifeguards that I think we could learn a lot from in the fire service and, and law enforcement where, you know, you, lives depend on us. And sometimes that's lost, which blows my mind. But, you know, for you, Losing someone because you got tired trying to swim out to them is unacceptable. And for us, losing someone because we got tired on the way to wherever they were trapped is exactly the same thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I'm going to lose some. I've lost, lost a lot of people, but it's part of the part of the nature of our profession, you know, and, and, and lifeguards in Hawaii, they, they're totally underpaid. Totally. We've been underpaid forever. There's, there's, I mean, you think about when Brian left, you know, in 1994, I think it was, or no, it was 98 maybe, he left because he got work on Waterworld. He got picked to go to Waterworld, him and Terry Ahui. And they were supposed to go for eight weeks. And they left for eight months. And it opened their eyes and it realized, okay, I'm making 40000 as a lifeguard lieutenant. But I just made four times, five times the amount in eight months. What am I doing? So, and that was the end of Brian. After that, he was he was done. He, he, he early retired and he left and... He became a professional stuntman and was traveling the world and doing all these movies. And that's kind of where, kind of where it led, it started to lead us because, you know, he would start getting TV shows and movies now as a stunt coordinator. And of course he's going to hire all his boys because he trusts all of us. And so that's kind of where it led, led me to that transition from lifeguarding to 
to being a stuntman and being a stunt rigger now. It's like it opened doors. When he left, it opened doors for sure. And and I I, I humbly admit that I am probably the big, biggest benefactor of him being a stuntman. Like at the I wanted to do the same thing. And so I would save all my, and I'm not supposed to say this, but I would just take off and, hey, I got a job. I, I don't tell him what I'm doing. I'm like, I need off. You know, I need this day off. I need that day off. And I did that for a long time until I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough leave or vacation or anything. And I got an opportunity to go to China for four months. And I was like, and I was two years from retiring and I'm like, and you're making double the pay in China because it's China. I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to leave the department. And that's when I left. And that was 2015. And I was getting busier and busier and busier, not only doing stuff with Brian, but with stuff with other people. And it was to a point where I had to make a decision and I just, my wife and I, we decided that it was time to leave two years from retirement, which you, you know, people are going to hear this and go, Oh my gosh, you should have just stayed in tears. Well, you don't understand that I wasn't contributing to my retirement. It was just a normal sitting county one and a half percent or whatever it is, two and a half percent or whatever it was. If I would, if I waited, I would have made, somewhere around 11 or $1,200 a month if I waited and stayed in the lifeguard department. It wasn't worth it for me to stay for that. It really wasn't. Because when I reach age, I'm going to get in anyway. And what am I going to do with it? Probably going to split it between both my kids, give her half, give the other one half. You know, and it's it just the, the opportunity wasn't worth it me staying as a lifeguard and so i i i don't know if it's early retirement or i quit but i i tell people i just quit you know i went to china for four months and that led me to what i do today and the, the doors that it's opened for me and you know i i try to shy away from doing the water stuff because and people always ask me, how come you're not doing the water stuff anymore? It's because 10 years ago, I realized that there was a, when there was, when the stunt industry started doing stunt rigging instead of letting special effects do their stunt rigging, they started, they created stunt rigging department, stunt department rigging, sorry, stunt rigging department. And 10 years ago, I was like, there's nobody in Hawaii. Nobody in Hawaii doing that. So I started collecting a little bit of stuff. Started dabbling into it, figuring out, learning on, on jobs. Every time I went to different jobs, learning the craft, learning the knots they tie, learning what kind of equipment and who they buy it from. And so I started shying away from doing the water. Now, there's a couple of reasons. That was one reason. The second reason is I was getting older. I was getting a little older. And there is a dime a dozen talented water men 
on this island. I'm talking hundreds. I mean, Brian Kailana and his nephews alone, that's five, six right there. His brother Rusty, that's another one. Mal Poo, that's another one. I mean, you're talking like a lineage of, a line of excellent water guys that could do that job. So if I'm already doing stunts and performing and stunt rigging, imagine if I did the water safety also, and I'm taking all of that just for myself. What is that going to do for my friends and other people that I love and care? You know, they're going to be mad. They're going to be pissed off. Wow, freaking Craiger, he's taking all the jobs. What's going on? So I try to shy away from the water stuff. Not saying that I won't do another water world if, if it ever happens. Of course, I'll be there. But I wanted to give other people opportunities to work and make money also because I was already making money. I was already on a different path to, to stunt rigging, which is what I really love to do. Like, And so, but that's where I am now. I, I, I just, I, I, I have my own trailer, I have equipment in there. I built my own firing boxes. I have air cylinders and lots of hard work into my little 20 foot trailer, you know, so. Well, it's, it's so good to hear firstly from the transition point of view, because I've talked about this myself, you know, in the fire service, um, and law enforcement in, in the U S you know, the, the, one of the carrots on the stick is the pension and, if that's your only motivator, there's a lot of people in this profession that just want to do it their full career because they love it. And, and that's exactly what should happen. But if you're chasing a certain um, retirement year because that's when you hit 25 or that's when you're in the drop program or whatever it is, but you're miserable and you got a countdown app on your phone, just counting away the days, you know, you're going to do the bare minimum on the job and you're not right. going to be happy. So, you know, for me, I adore the fire service, but, you know, I, I came to a crossroads where basically the universe kind of boxed me into a corner and was like, all right, you know, <laughs> it's time for you to, to transition to a, to helping in a different way. And I found myself here, but I think it's an important thing for people to hear just because traditionally a profession works for X amount of years doesn't mean you need to. We, we applaud the military when they serve for four, eight years. Wow. That's, you know, it's incredible. But then, as right. you said, but, oh, Craig quit. No, you know, you, you were a lifeguard. You always be a lifeguard and your chapter was X amount of years. My chapter was X amount of years, but I don't, I don't consider myself quitting or retiring early. I just transitioned to a different profession. Right. So I, I applaud you for that personally. Right. And, and like you said, Towards the ending of my lifeguard career, I decided to sit in the lifeguard tower at a beach, at Maili Beach. And most of the time that I was in the tower, uh, sadly, I wasn't paying attention because my mind was so, was thinking about when is my next movie job going to be? So my passion for lifeguarding was already diminishing and it was already not there. Oh, if something happened, of course I would we would respond and do something, but I wasn't being my best. I wasn't being my best 
towards the ending of my career, I wasn't being my the best lifeguard because I wasn't watching as much. You know, I wasn't being as proactive. I wasn't as passionate as, like you said. But it took me leaving lifeguarding, that profession, leaving it to appreciate it more. It, it, it really made me love it more when I was not doing it. Because, like I said, I was sitting in the tower making phone calls and finding out who's doing the next movie and emailing my resume and my headshot. Like, that's what I was doing most of the time when I was sitting in the lifeguard towards the ending of my career. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see a parallel, you know, in so many people, myself included, and I was doing the podcast, you know, that became more and more of a distraction for me. I know a lot of people that ran their businesses from their firehouse, you know, um, and then that's a very important time for us to look in the mirror and say, you know, would someone else, a new fresh person in the seat, serve the the profession better at this point? And again, it's right. not quitting. It's not giving up. It's like, has this particular position where I fill one spot in one chair run its course and is it time for me to go and transition into something whether you're a force multiplier position whether you change careers whatever it is but yeah I mean I think if you're not all in that's a very dangerous place in the professions that we inhabit yeah it is yeah you don't realize that like when you're not all in you're really endangering not only the public yourself also you know not being not working out just sitting in the lifeguard tower eating food just hanging out you know it's like you don't realize that until until i was gone oh my gosh could have been working out could have been helping people a little bit more i mean nothing happened thank god well, let me ask you about this then. So what was an interesting kind of uh, cross-pollination? And Jason was telling me about um, you know, Brian being one of the men who developed the jet ski stunts that became the Waterworld jet ski stunts. Um, the company I work for now, Action Horizons, I do, I do the Jason Bourne stunt show in Orlando. Um, they are also the company that do the Waterworld stunt show in LA and Osaka, Japan, I think in Shanghai as well, or well, they were doing it in Shanghai. Um, so, so tell me about that. You were, you know, in lifeguarding. Tell me about your journey into the stunt world. And I've been lucky. I've been so lucky. I've been so blessed to be in the position that I am now and being on all these big movies. I just, I just finished seven, almost seven months on the latest Spider-Man. And it was, you know, I've been, I've been really blessed. I've done Black Panther, done both Jumanji's, both Jurassic Worlds. I mean, I've done a Guardians of the Galaxy. I've done a lot of, lot of cool films. And But my journey started, I think it was in 1997 when they were doing Baywatch. I think it was Baywatch. I'm not sure if it was Baywatch or Pearl Harbor. I can't figure out when I got my side card. But I think it was Baywatch and we were just doing water safety at the time and um, the stunt coordinator at the time, his name was Gr- is Greg Barnett, and he asked me if I wanted to be a like a. It was a man trapped on the side of a mountain, next to the ocean, and it was at a 
place called Spinning Cave over here on the east side. People die. People die all the time at Spinning Cave. Every year, somebody, two, three people die. It's high. It's like 45 feet high or something. And it goes into a little narrow passageway into a cave. And it's on the roughest side of the island. It's rough. It's windy and rough. And it's horrible. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I'm going to act scared. Make pretend I'm trapped on the side of this mountain. They have me on a on a line just for safety, you know, so I don't accidentally fall. And I was totally fine. And then I then I just slip and jump and fall and land in the ocean. And here comes the Baywatch crew. They come pick me up and put me on the boat and and do CPR. They actually did CPR on me. I, don't know, I forgot forgot about that. And <laughs> it was actually Jason Momoa, who actually was putting his lips on mine. I, I, I remember that also. But <laughs> <laughs> You're making a lot of female, female, and maybe male uh, listeners jealous right now. <laughs> right, right. And so that was when I, I'm pretty sure that's when I got my side card. I could be wrong, though, but I, that's the first memory of me doing, like, something really, really, like, that was my first, I think that was my first time. But I think I'm 100% wrong. <laughs> uh, but then we did Pearl Harbor. We did all these other shows. And Pearl Harbor was fun to do. Uh, I did not work that much. I think I like worked like a week or something. And at the time, everybody was working. You know, all these legend Hollywood stuntmen legends were there. And I, I have no idea what what it was like to to learn the business, to hustle hustle somebody. To, you know, you, you really had to self-promote yourself. And I wasn't good at that at the time. I was this humble guy from the West Side. And I would just be like, yeah, whatever. I get whatever work I got. You know, it's all good. I make some money. And, you know, but if I knew what I knew now, I would have did it differently for sure. But it, it happened the way it happened. And that was cool, you know. But, um. And then we did Baywatch, and we—I mean, not Baywatch—we did Blue Crush and all those other movies. And and then uh, Battleship was coming to Hawaii, and Battleship was big. I mean, it was two hundred million dollar film, I think, and it was a lot of—it was a big film. And the stunt coordinator was coming here, and uh, I think Brian was doing a show, and somehow my name got dropped, and the stunt coordinator asked me to be the assistant stunt coordinator for Hawaii and to wrangle the guys and to get the guys resumes and headshots. And then we can place them in their positions or whatever. And, and that was my first real big taste of a big production. It was giant. It was radical and it was a high stress. And my wife was pregnant with our second child. And it was so, it was a little stress for me. I lost a lot of weight on that movie. I lost a ton of weight and I wasn't working out and I was working every single day for four months. And my wife, we had our baby two days before the first day of shooting. <laughs> so it was really, it was really, a, it was just my, it was just my first taste of a big giant production being somewhat in charge of certain things, you know? The water safety and the jet skis and then finding all the 
all the um, the Navy guys to be in the water because I had to find people that could swim and not just it could they couldn't be just regular extras they had to be specialty extras and um but yeah that was my first real taste of a, a big show and then of course Hawaii Five O started and we work I, I worked a lot I worked a lot on Hawaii Five O the first every season all the way till season 10 and for seven seasons I just performed and did a lot of bad guy roles and the driving cars chases and the you know and I didn't do any rigging at all but I was kind of collecting rigging stuff at the time like I said earlier and and then season seven or eight they switched stunt coordinators and Next thing you know, the new stunt coordinator was like, you're going to be my rigger because I was rigging a little bit more. I had already gone to China to rig on, a, on the Great Wall and I'd already done other movies rigging and I was, I was deep already into like buying all this equipment, but I didn't have a trailer. And the, the new stunt coordinator for Hawaii Five-0 said, you're going to be my rigger. You're here. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need a trailer because I can't just keep carrying all my stuff in my truck. It's just in containers. It was ridiculous. And so I found it. I actually found a trailer and started building out my trailer. And then in the, in the last three seasons of Hawaii Five-0, the stunt coordinator actually paid off everything that I owned. He paid it all off. The trailer the equipment that I had by the third season that he was here, he had paid me, paid me enough to pay off my trip, which led me to buy more, of course, buy more and buy more and buy more. And I built my own ratchet firing boxes, which is what we use to fly people. And you see people flying in the air or flying through walls or, you know, sometimes you do it on a, on a ladder and a hand pull and a line, you just you just jerk jerk the person, and sometimes you put them on a ratchet. And I have my own ratchets now, and I have a D-cell cylinder which I can drop somebody off a building, which I've done a few times here. And you know, I don't even want to do anything else. And it's kind of ironic. It's kind of saving lives if you think about it. It's kind of saving lives, but in a different way. And I'm kind of in that transition where I'm really passionate about it. And kind of like how I was after I lost all my earrings and my gold chain, it's the same way now that I am at rigging. That's how serious I am. That's how I'm always in my trailer. My wife is always like, you're always in your man cave. I'm like, yeah, because I'm, I'm constantly fixing things, changing things, making sure it's working, making sure it's, you know, nothing's breaking, making sure everything's clean and good and all that stuff. It's the same way I did with lifeguarding. It's, I was training, I was working out. I was, my, my tools were my body. That was my tools. And Brian Kilana always said it. You're only as good as. Uh, wait, you're only as good as. Darn it. I forget the. I forget what he says. But like he would always train you 
And if you were on the jet ski, he would go, here we go. That's just a, that's just a machine. What if the machine breaks? How are you going to survive if that machine breaks? And that's the same with me with rigging. It's the same. I, I'm always in there fixing stuff. It's just the tools are not my body anymore. The tools are my is my equipment. Well, it's it's fascinating as well hearing that through line because it's what I was saying earlier about going from physically being a firefighter paramedic, having my own hands on the tools, on the patient, whatever it is, to using this platform to try and make the environment that our men and women work in safer to promote the health stuff the safety stuff the mental health stuff you know through the guests that i get on and you know you talked about that ownership now of your skills knowing that other stunt performers lives depend on your ownership of your craft your master of your craft and i've had a couple of, of well i've had a guest on the show olivia jackson who was near fatally wounded on the resident evil um production right. she lost her arm and you know just right. an incredible woman and then one of the stunt guys i work with now josh he had a really bad ratchet accident where it misfired and he ended up being like dragged into a marble wall and you know completely caved his face in and really really awful another near fatal accident so talk to me about um you know obviously you're on that mission to make it as safe as possible what are some of the the dark sides of the stunt world and how can how can that be addressed and made safer for our stunt performers oh darn that's a that's a deep question that i haven't even even thought of i try it is scary i tell you it's scary when you have someone on the line and he's jumping off a building and that you know at the time, I had two of the best stunt riggers in the business with me because I had to have them here. It was it was nerve wracking, and our performer did it three times, and it was one time too many. And you know, you just do. You just I'm, for me, like in that case, I surrounded myself with the people that I know that have the experience running a diesel cylinder, knowing what to do, but also learning and understanding what they're doing. I mean, using all their right equipment, making sure everything is up to spec. You don't use any, you know, cheap stuff from, from the Home Depot. You don't use any of that stuff. It's all like, those things, I mean, I think that's all you can do. I, I, I mean, and Brian is, Brian is a good. He's he's trained in. He's trained by the uh, army, I think, in risk assessment, and he transferred that over to the lifeguards at one point, and that makes a huge difference when we carry it over to the stunt business. Like, you might think. You might think it's overkill when we have a pad pit that's three times the size of what it should be, but he's always preparing for the worst what if. And if you if you set it up a way that you know it's two or three times you know bigger than it should be, then that's fine. You know, that's one thing that 
carried over from the, the lifeguarding side was that risk assessment thing, that class that we took with Brian. It's just understanding what all the hazards are, all the dangers, and how you're going to manage those dangers and, and, and assess all those dangers and how you're going to minimize the injury. And that's, that's a, it carries over to the same with, with, with stunts and stunt rigging, you know, like I said, you got to have the right people there. You got to have the right equipment. You got to have the knowledge and the education in your mind. And if they, and if your team doesn't have it, then you got to educate it and, and, and let them know why and what you're doing and what's going on and, you know, everything. So they know and they understand. That's the only thing I, 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 you know, accident, uh, knock on wood, it hasn't happened to me yet. And I've been very, very blessed, very lucky to be surrounded by and working with the best stunt riggers in the business. Yeah, you reminded me of uh, another friend of mine. I did a, a pirate stunt show in Orlando, actually in LA as well. And um, they introduced a high fall into the show. And one of my friends was just climbing down from the rigging in this in this uh, particular piece of set, this like crow's nest, and he got tangled up and he fell. And that particular pit was tiny. I mean, like a postage stamp. It was only eighteen foot full that I would do, but um, you know, the pit was only like a foot wider than the pad. And he ended up falling, and he wasn't deliberately falling, but because of the fact that the pit wasn't right underneath where we were, he actually fell and landed on the corner on his back on the on the actual stage itself and ended up you know breaking his back basically luckily he, was, he wasn't paralyzed but that that building in that redundancy of safety i think that's a danger when there are corners cut and i see a complete parallel between the stunt world which i basically did right from when i became a firefighter so those two professions have been parallel but as you said, the, the the right equipment, the right training, the right competency of skills, like no one has has you know should be doing high falls. It's only done them a few times. You know, I think we've got a mutual friend, Steve Shriver, who I work with in Japan. Oh, I, mean, I love Steve. Phenomenal diver. You know, and he was a diver in 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 that particular role, and rightly so. All those guys were like top world class high divers. You know, so you know taking those those lessons from the fire service and applying them to the stunt world, or vice versa. It's been very interesting to see, like when when we lose people on either side, if you reverse engineer it, it's probably exactly what you were saying: the absence of the absence of quality equipment, the absence of training, the absence of mastery of that craft, and you have this perfect storm that results in a death. And a little bit of complacency too, you know, thinking, oh yeah, this guy is super experienced; he can do it. And then, yeah, we don't need that. We don't need it to be that big of a pit wall. That's not the way to think. You, you got to think if he does screw up, even if he's one of the best in the world, if he does screw up, what's going to happen? And that comes from, like I said, the risk assessment class that we took and, and understand. We did it for the beaches. We did it for every beach. Keep, Brian made us draw pictures of every single beach during every single season, where all the hazards are, identify all the hazards, and then come up with a plan. If somebody was to be in that area, what you would do before it even happened. It might not ever, ever happened, happen. But he made you draw up pictures of all the beaches just so you would be prepared if you were there or if you came to a rescue on the jet ski, like 
oh, I got to go here. I can't go there. You know, that, that, that was, that's all from, from that. Yeah. And that's something I've talked about a lot on here, you know, with the, especially the special operations com- community, they will plan their, you know, A, B, and C because, you know, they're going off and doing a certain, you know, mission. Well, what if it goes wrong? What if we have to go on foot? Like you said, you know, you're, res- you're, you're right. falling back to your lowest common denominator, your plan B, plan C. You know, you're not using the machines, you're using that body now. Um, but it's mo- the more complacent department that I work for, it was the polar opposite. Well, it's never happened. Therefore, it won't happen. Instead of it's never happened, therefore, the chances of happening are higher, like statistically. So we right. have to try and what if all these scenarios, we can't cover them all, but at least if you can kind of enter each of those realms and you train for that, then God forbid it happens in real life. You have some sort of structure to hang your plan on. Right. You know, I'll go, I'll go back. I'll go back a little bit. When we did our rescue operator final test and it was Jason, my best friend Jason and I, and mind you, we had already seen what the first test was going to be like because we were, I said we were a second group to get handpicked. So we already knew all the intricacies of, of what was going to be in the test because we already were, we were there as the, as the patient's, when they did the first test with the first two guys. Okay. And we did our test. We passed it. It's all good. We, we, you know, we get bumps and bruises and it was kind of like, eh, because we already knew everything. Fast forward till, till, to last year, I think it was. And it's a whole different group of, uh, instructors, a whole class of, uh, prospect, prospective, you know, rescue operators, potential rescue operators. And instructors is they're they're our friends. They've been lifeguards forever. They've been uh they were rescue operators coming up when we were leaving. And he's now the instructor. And one of our one of our friends was in the class. He's a younger kid. He's always asking me and Brian for advice, you know, and you know, what about this and what about that? He really wanted to be a rescue operator and, and we try to help him as best we can. He's like our cousin. We're like cousins, you know. He's Brian's cousin, but I've paddled with this family forever. And so calls and or he texts and I forget, you know, and my, my biggest advice to him was to understand not only what what you, what your body can do, like you know, one, it's just a machine. You know, you got to train to survive if the machine breaks, blah, blah, blah. I did all that. But the machine is in top working condition. My advice to him was to learn what you can do on the machine with the machine. Because at the end of the day, when you get into a situation where, oh my gosh, there's a there's one man shore break in front of me. Uh, what do I do? Well, in your training class, that's what you're supposed to do is learn how to go through all that stuff. They do, they do to a certain extent. Yeah, they go through waves and they break through waves, but they wouldn't. The instructor wouldn't deviate from what was in the book. This so-called book, right? There's a book that 
everybody invented this manual jet ski manual that they're, they're, and it's just standards and he wouldn't deviate from that and i'm like dude you know all we did was he goes oh we did one person rescue i mean two two person rescue unconscious con-. he told us all these things and then my, our re- response back was hey did you do one person rescue and he's like oh no our instructor didn't want us to do that and we're like why and it's because he didn't want to deviate from the manual. And it's not a normal, it's not in the manual. But we're Brian and I are like, yeah, but you guys ride the jet ski all by yourself sometimes. What if you drive up to somebody and he's face down and you're by yourself? And there's a wave coming. How are you like going to get the guy up And if you don't know how to get the guy up? And so it bummed me out because I was taught that way by Brian and, them and, and, the, and the four fathers. I was taught that way to think worst case scenario. They put us at Sunset Beach and they go, okay, you're by yourself. And it's windy today and there's surf today and the waves are five foot sunset and there's your victim right in the middle over there. What are you going to do? And you got to bring them in by yourself. And we were like, what? How do we do this? They're like, I don't know. You figure it out. Like, okay. So one, I got to get to the patient. Two, I got to take the lanyard off my arm because I don't want to pull the lanyard off and then have to put it back on when I have the patient on. So you pull it off your arm and you put it on the handlebar. Three, you got to shut the ski off. But before you shut it off, you got to gas it and put it in an area upwind, up current. Because after you go get the guy, the ski's got to be around you somewhere. Because if not, it's going to be in the current and it's going to be gone. And you're not going to swim to the ski with holding on to a guy. That's the kind of class that we had that prepared us to be, you know, to think worst case, to think, I forgot what we were talking about, but they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that now. And there's, it, it's like the training is like totally different. And it's, it's, yeah, we're talking about training, but the training is not the same as what we used. They're not preparing the men to be their best, their best uh, operator. You know, and, and Brian was a huge advocate of that. He, every, every time he had a class, he would say, you know, I want you guys to come out of this class being as good as me or being better than me. If you guys get somewhere close to that or past me, dude, I'm going to be so stoked. Super stoked. And the training, like like I said, the training nowadays is just not it's not the same. You, I mean, but you have to stay on it, like you said, stay on the training, keep up with the equipment in my trailer, like all that, all that stuff. I hope that makes sense. I don't know. No, it does. Like I said, there's so many parallels to the lifeguarding elements of your stories, to the stunt elements of your stories, and I think that's it. We need a good ownership of the basic skills first. But, you know, one example, one of my um, stations in two departments ago had a boat 
And they had no standards on anyone that staffed that station being able to swim, being able to understand, you know, sea spine and immobilization in the water, understanding how to back a trailer. You know what I mean? So you could be assigned there with the bare minimum and then have to save someone from a lake and have no idea how to get that vehicle in, how not to run them over and chop them up with a propeller, how, you know, to get them out. I mean, none of that. So by taking an ownership of the basics first and then start pushing your skill level out and each time what if this what if that what if this fails what if this rig can't get to us what if the helicopter can't fly and then you start building this skill set out from there that to me i think is how you know through an entire career in one of our professions that you pursue mastery and that's what the old bull should be like that's the one you go to and i had an example with one of my uh, fire captains that did exactly that thought outside the box and ended up putting us in a position where we we rescued a fire engine basically it was getting burnt up but it was because of his ability to think way outside the box and that's what i always chase too is you're always you're always trying to to add to that skill set keep, keep the basics sharp but then add to that skill set right yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to transition to some closing questions so I can uh, let you get on with your day and let you check out your stuff in your man cave. Um, <laughs> yes, thanks. <laughs> so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you like to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Oh. No, I hate to say it. I'm not a, I'm not a book reader at all. No worry. What about um, a what about a film then? If you, if you don't read books, I mean, my favorite films are one is Gladiator. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know what it is. I've worked with the second unit director and stunt coordinator on that movie. He was on Battleship, and he's a he's a but his attention to detail and, but anyway, it's just one of my favorite movies. Um, Black Hawk Down was another one. Same, same stunt coordinator, same guy. Uh, it's funny. Um, but no, I guess I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge book reader. I, I don't, we don't watch TV much nowadays. I don't have cable in my house. I have a TV, but my kids watch like Netflix or something. And, um, try to stay outdoors a little bit more but i have the best advice i had and it was from a stuntman but it has nothing to do with life in in itself and and don't get me wrong like lifeguarding was way more fulfilling than than stunt rigging and that's what i miss the most about lifeguarding is just saving someone's life i mean it's kind of the same like we talked about but it's not really the same you know um and the highs and the lows of lifeguarding, you know, like you have people that, that die on you and it's part of life and it's part of learning. And, um, but from my movie side of the career, I, the biggest advice I've ever gotten was, and, and I've talked about Brian a lot, talked about Brian cause he's, you know, he's a mentor and he's, put me on on this path and then I've gone on different paths and it's a long time stuntman long time ago his name's Buddy Joe Hooker he's one of the legends of the business he was you know at one time the greatest stuntman 
alive and was winning stuntman competitions and all this stuff. And he was doing a show here, and he it got canceled. And he said, "Oh, meet meet us at meet me at at Ruth Chris. We're gonna have I'm going. I'm leaving. It's canceled. Okay, yeah, we three of us went. And the advice he gave to all three of us was to never wait for anyone in this business. Never wait." Um, he said, Craiger, you, you're always with Brian and you always work with Brian and that's great. He said, that's super great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be successful in this business, you have to branch off and go on your own path because if Brian is not working, that means you're not working. Now, if you have other people that you are friends with, and is in your tree of tree of uh, of different you know people to work for. Then you can go to this limb, and you can ask this guy if he's working or not. And you, if he's not working, you go to the next guy and ask this guy if he's not working or not. And if you go to the next guy, and, and you can go to all these different options. And that was the biggest thing that the biggest the best advice I got is not to limit yourself to only certain people. You know, and that's the reason why I got all these opportunities and also the reason why I stopped doing the water, kind of stopped doing water stuff is because you know, it it gave me more opportunities to work in the business. One as a assistant stunt coordinator on Battleship, then it started being rigging and then now I'm rigging for I'm rigging for one, two, three, four, I could be rigging for five different people now, you know, six maybe. I mean, it's just a, a lot of limbs and trees and fingers that I can I can touch to. And I, I, I try to do that as much as I can, you know. I won't work for, I mean, I won't, there's people you won't work for. And of course I'm going to work for Brian if he calls me, you know. I mean, if I'm home or if I'm not, I mean, if I'm available, I'm home. But if he's not working, you're not working. And so that was the biggest advice I ever got was to just branch out and do your own thing. It's not, it's not, it's kind of a selfish thing, but it's not, you know, I mean. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's great advice. And to expand on that, something that I realized was also don't wait for, for an environment, an organization, a company, whatever it is for them to give you an opportunity make that opportunity yourself and and a perfect example is with this platform now i get to have a conversation with you and i get to put it out immediately to the people well 40 years ago 30 years ago we would have to try and see if a news agency would set up a conversation an interview whatever and you might get what a five minute spot well, now we can have an hour and a half conversation because we've created our own platform. So that's something right. that I learned too, is if you're waiting for you know, a politician to enact law to try and make a change in the world, or then you're, waste, you're not wasting your time, but why not just, just you know, find the actual direct line from A to B and create whatever road that is and enforce that, you know, get, gets directly right. to the people. Not, not, don't wait for a third party to approve or allow you to do whatever it is you're trying to do in the world. Right. And, you know, my, my, my biggest thing was, and I got to thank my wife because my wife, she is the one person that, and I was scared. 
I was scared to like, you know, leave, quit lifeguarding, you know, it was, it was a scary, it was just a scary time. And I had a more, you know, I got a mortgage, I got school tuition. Like she was the one that, and she's this, that type of person. She's the type of person that will, that will try something. And if it doesn't work, she'll try something else. And at the time I was scared and she was like, babe, you got to do it. You got to do it. You just got to do it. And she convinced me to leave. It was time to leave. You know, it's time to start thinking about rigging and, and all these other things. If not, I, I probably would still be lifeguarding. If she wasn't in my life, I'd probably be still lifeguarding. And yeah, I got to thank her 150% for uh for pushing me for encouraging me to try something different try something new not knowing you know it's the world of not knowing it's like oh my gosh i don't know if i'm gonna make it but she was the one that trusted and believed in me and 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 i I love her and i got thankful for that Well, I can relate. My wife stood, you know, stood behind me when I was leaving all the security of the fire service, the the pension, the benefits, and you know, went out on my own. And she, she said, "All right, let's do it." And then now it's kind of flipped where she's on her way to medical school, and this has taken to the point where I'm able to kind of stand behind her now. So that's right. I think that's a beautiful insight into a great marriage. Right, and she's she's been successful pretty much all her her life like i mean her work life anyway i mean she's been she's had a huge manufacturing company and she does the same now like but when she came when she moved back to hawaii and we started uh our journey she wasn't really doing anything and and now it's just it's a flourishing business that she owns with one other person and they've never borrowed a dime from anybody and they've turned it into a really successful business. So in a sense, and I, I don't express that enough to her, but she was like, she's always been somebody that I've always looked up to, too, because she's been so successful, you know? And so it, it gave me confidence to like, be like, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. She sees it's going to work. She believes in me all right, let's take this leap of faith that I'm going to do it, you know, and, and that's where I am at, at today. You know, I love everything that I have. I'm blessed. Got a beautiful house, beautiful kids, you know, beautiful view outside my house of the ocean, like a mountain behind me. Like I come home sunset every day. Um, you know, I work, I get to work, I get to go places and see things and they get to come and hang out and see places. And it's just, everything's going good right now. Everything's going great. And thank you for having me on this. I hope it, I hope it, uh, I hope it was interesting. Um, and I hope people get it. Hope people get some kind of inspiration a little bit, I guess. <laughs> no, well, it's, I mean, everyone's story is so unique. And, um, you know, one of, one of the other closing questions I have, I always ask people, 
and I, I'd actually point this. Um, I asked if there's someone they would recommend to come on as a guest. And I think Jason talked about Brian as well. I would love to get Brian on one day if you think you would be able to help that happen. Oh, sure. I mean, Brian is, you know, he's not only known in Hawaii. That guy's known around the world as the water safety the water safety guru. That's, that's, that's the guy. He's created, he's created uh, it's called Bragg big wave assessment group you can follow it on instagram and he's created that and they go around the world and they teach you know lifeguards professional big wave surfers like they teach everything everything and everything risk assessment on your area the areas to go not to go they do underwater they do breath holding they do cpr they do i mean it's like a it's a huge thing and he would I think he would be uh, very good for your show, for your podcast. Interesting to listen to because he always has some kind of acronym or some kind of thing to say or, you know, the, um, the mannerisms of, of Brian that only certain of us, you know, people know. So, But he paved the way, paved the way for a lot of us. And, uh, I'm one of them. And I've, like I said, I'm probably the biggest benefactor of that especially now in the movies and especially my lifeguarding career and the path it took you know absolutely well thank you so much we'll, we'll work on on making that connection then um so craig i just want to say thank you so much what i love about this podcast and i get this feedback a lot as well is the diversity of the guests and that's very deliberate you know we we tend to be very siloed in the fire service for example and we get a lot of great people within our profession but we hear them a lot and there are so many other people from so many other professions that have so much not only you know parallel skills and stories but just so much value and cross-pollination to you know each other whether it's learning from the fire service into the the lifeguarding community or you know from the the military into the law enforcement so i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time it's been fascinating hearing your specific journey between the you know the actual boogie boarding to lifeguarding to stunts and rigging um so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today thank you my pleasure keep in touch brother